Uh, let me invite you now to uh, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. There will be, after today, two more messages out of the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> so, while you think it may be over, not yet. So we have just two verses today, uh, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. And we're going to be talking about pleasing God. <clears throat> and uh, it is a miracle beyond all miracles that we can. But I want to encourage you today that we can. And I want to tell you how we can. Uh, it's been very encouraging to me this week. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is God's word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, this is your word, and as we come now to the conclusion of the book of Hebrews, we pray that you would open our eyes once again to behold wonderful things in your word. And we ask that you would teach us by your spirit what our heart's desire should be uh, contained in this exhortation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the two most important words in this passage, it may be in the entire book of Hebrews, are the first two words of verse 14, uh, 15, excuse me, verse 15. And that is, through him. Through him. Actually, in the original language, as I looked at it this week, that is the first thing in the verse. And in Greek, when you want to emphasize something, you move it to the beginning of the sentence. And so the beginning of the sentence here begins with through him. And in many ways, that's what the book of Hebrews is about. It is about understanding the soul priesthood and Christ being our mediator, our only mediator. And so understanding those things are key to understanding what this exhortation is encouraging us and even commanding us to do. Uh, by virtue of the sacrifice of himself, Christ has, is a ransom for sinners and he is our sole mediator. And it is accordingly through him which is placed at the beginning of the sentence in Greek as well as in our version we're looking at today, not through the priestly ritual of any ordained uh, or outmoded order or system that we offer up sacrifices to God. As a matter of fact, Peter in his letter, 1 Peter 2.5, tells us that we offer up sacrifices to God for the members of the Christian church constitute a holy priesthood whose duty it is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now to truly understand what through him means, I'm going to um, for a few moments talk about how 
And since the context of the book of Hebrews is addressing people who are in danger of going back to the old covenant ways of worship, of returning to the synagogues and to the temple and relying upon the priest of Israel again to um, intercede for them. And so I think the writer of Hebrews has been extremely careful to help us focus our attention in verse 15 on the only true mediator. And so what I want to do is sort of give you an explanation of how Christ has fulfilled what the Old Testament order pointed to. And when we consider the Old Testament and we consider Israel in the Old Testament as in Israel to this day, the great central act of Jewish worship took place on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That was the day in the year which gathered up the worship of every other day. On that day, an offering was made to God which gathered up all the other offerings made daily in the sanctuary. On that day, the worship and intercessions of all Israel were led by one man, that is, the high priest. Consider for a moment the symbolism of that day, Yom Kippur. First, the high priest stood before the people as their divinely appointed representative. Bone of their bone, flesh of their flesh, their brother in solidarity with the people he represented. That's very important. The one on behalf of the many, the leader of their worship. All that he did on the Day of Atonement, he did in their name. This was symbolized by the fact that he bore their names engraved on his breastplate and shoulders as a memorial before God. Secondly, he consecrated himself for this ministry by certain liturgical acts of washing and sacrifice. The blood sprinkled on his right ear, right thumb, and right toe. Thirdly, there comes the great moment when he takes an animal and he lays his hands on the victim and vicariously confesses the sins of all Israel in an act of penitence acknowledging the just judgment of God. Fourthly, when the victim is sacrificed and burned as a symbol of the just judgment of God and the scapegoat is driven into the wilderness to symbolize the removal of guilt, the high priest takes the blood in a vessel and he goes into the Holy of Holies and there vicariously intercedes for all Israel. You know what the word vicariously means? On the behalf of, he does it in our place. Uh, my dad used to tell me that his sister used to watch soap operas vicariously. As a matter of fact, she lived her life through soap operas. She thought those people were real, and they were telling real stories of their lives. And she would worry about them, and she would pray for them. She lived her life vicariously through them. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe that will help you grasp that term. And so the priest did that. He vicariously interceded for all Israel. God will remember his covenant promises and graciously forgive them. We can visualize the high priest in the sanctuary interceding for all of Israel and all Israel outside interceding, a great volume of prayer ascending to God, led by the high priest. Finally, if he lived, 
He returned to the waiting people outside with the Arianic blessing of peace. You've heard this before. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, the New Testament saw this, everything I just told you, as a foreshadowing of the mediatorial ministry of Jesus Christ. Firstly, he comes from the Father to be the true priest. Bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, in solidarity with all humanity, all races, all colors, bearing upon his divine human heart the names, the needs, the sorrows, the injustices of all nations. He offers to the Father that worship, that obedience, that love of life in unbroken intimate communion which we could never offer. Secondly, he consecrates himself for this ministry of leading us into the presence of the Father. In our Lord's high priestly prayer, when he intercedes for his people, he says this, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. The one for the many, for both he who sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all one. For he is not ashamed to call them brothers." and sisters. Jesus' whole life of prayer and obedience and love, his whole life of communion in the Spirit, is his total self-consecration for us. Thirdly, Jesus offers no animal, but he himself in death would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, saying amen to our humanity to the just judgment of God. He does not appease an angry God to condition him into being gracious, but in perfect acknowledgement of the holy love of the Father for a sinful world seals God's covenant purposes for all humanity by his blood. Fourthly, on Easter, he says to Mary, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go instead to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The high priest is on his way into the Holy of Holies to intercede for his people. Fifthly, on the same day at evening, as the disciples are met in prayer in an upper room, Jesus comes to them and says what? Peace be unto you. It is the return of the high priest who now gives the gifts of the Spirit that they might share with him in his apostolic mission to the world as a royal priesthood with the word of forgiveness. When we think of the symbolism of the way of worship in the Old Testament, especially Israel on the Day of Atonement, we can make two statements. Number one, when the high priest entered into the holy presence of Yahweh in the sanctuary, he might, that he might present all Israel in his person to God, we can say, as Calvin puts it in his commentary on Hebrews, all Israel entered in his person. Conversely, when he vicariously confessed their sins and interceded for them before God, God accepted them as his forgiven people in the person of their high priest. This double statement expresses how God's covenant dealings with Israel were established at the hands of a mediator. 
In analogous fashion, we can make a twofold statement about Jesus Christ and life in the New Testament. When Jesus was born for us at Bethlehem, when he was baptized by the Spirit in the Jordan, suffered under Pontius Pilate, rose again and ascended, our humanity was then presented before God, and in the Spirit, Jesus suffered, died, rose again, and we suffered, died, and rose again, and ascended in him, our representative of our vicarious humanity. Now he presents us in himself to the Father as God's dear children, and our righteousness is hid with Christ in God, ready to be revealed on the last day. Because Jesus has lived our life, offered himself through the eternal spirit, without spot to the Father in our name and on our behalf, God totally accepts us in him. We are accepted in the beloved Son, immaculate in him and only in him, holy and blameless in his sight. And this is the significance when we pray in the name of Christ. Is that just a tag at the end? Is that like saying, well, nice talking to you, have a nice day? Or is that like saying, well, we hope we all live and do well and get better? No. To pray in Jesus' name is tapping into his soul mediatorship and his priesthood. Because of what he has done and is continuing to do for us in his name, we worship the Father in Christ as well as through Christ, in Christ as well as through Christ. Calvin said also of justification, we are righteous in Christ as well as justified by faith through the work of Christ. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, the one in whom God draws near to humanity in covenant love and the one in whom we draw near to God through the Spirit in worship. We offer ourselves to the Father in the name of Christ because he already has in our name made the one true offering to the Father, the offering by which he is sanctified for all time, those who come to God by him, and because he ever lives to intercede for us in our name. The covenant between God and humanity is totally concentrated in this one person. Now, why do I take the time to say all of that? Because we're always falling back to what we do to find acceptance with God. We're always turning back to religious exercises, our, our own spirituality, or our, our, our own good motives or intentions. We're always falling back on that when there's no better way to live than in the name of Christ. That is the pipeline through which every blessing we get, we get in union with him. He took our humanity upon himself, and he took that humanity and lived the life we should have lived, obeyed fully everything we were commanded, loved God with all his heart, loved his neighbor as himself, took that humanity down into death, took our sin with him, conquered death, triumphantly rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, entered the Holy of Holies, sprinkled his blood upon the author, and then pronounced to us peace, Forever, we are reconciled with God as we receive this as our own. But I'm going to tell you something even more. Our repentance and even our faith, ours, is too weak to save us. Our prayers, 
are too inarticulate and too selfish and too mixed and corrupted by our sin that our prayers, rather than helping us, would literally damn us if they weren't done in Jesus' name. Think for a moment about repentance. Repentance is turning. I'm going this way. And it's called metanoia. The meta means change. Noe in Greek is mind. And so I'm walking in this direction, and I'm metanoia. What do I do? I turn and walk in this direction. Now, repentance is something that is both a gift and a responsibility. But let me tell you something about repentance. Why was Jesus baptized? That's right. Thank you. I knew you'd say something there. Why was Jesus baptized? He wasn't baptized for himself. Why? He didn't need to repent, did he? He didn't have any sin in his life. Why did he undergo John's baptism? And why did the Spirit of God then ascend upon him and call him my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased? Why? He did that for you. Because your repentance stinks. And my repentance stinks and we need his repentance in our place. And when we repent, we're like the uh, prodigal son coming home. You remember him? When the prodigal son comes home, here's why he comes home. He thinks to himself, he's, he's, he's in the pigsty, eating the, the junk that pigs eat. He starts thinking, well, you know, my father's hired servants have a better quality of life than I'm experiencing at this moment. I'm out of money. I'm out of friends. I'm broke. I can't even pay attention. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to, you know, he made all this up in his head. He says, I'm going to go back and ask him if I can be his hired servant. That is lousy repentance. His motives are askew. There's nothing in his self-talk about any idea of wounding and offending his father. There's nothing in his self-talk about his rebelliousness in the face of God. Nothing, not a word. And so when he does come back, what does the father do? He starts his spiel, okay? He starts talking about all that, and the father ignores it. What does he do? He walks up to him, and he embraces him, and he covers him with kisses, and he falls on his neck. Why? The father had already forgiven him. And he brings out the robe, and he brings out the ring, and he brings out the sandals, and he covers this filthy son in the robe of the father's name. The father welcoming the son coming home. Even though his repentance was lousy, yours was and mine was too. And yours is and mine is too. That's why we need Jesus so much. You will always need Jesus. You will always need who he is and what he's done with you, for you, in order to walk with your God. Do you ever struggle with prayer? Do you... Do you ever find it hard to pray? Do you ever find like you're trying to articulate what your concerns are and you're trying to remember, well, what's the right way to pray? And you're trying to check your motives and you're going through all this agony. Do you know why God hears any of your prayers? Because you have a priest at the right hand named Jesus who takes them and presents them to the Father and he hears them gladly. But without Jesus, no hope. None. You might as well be speaking to the air. I cannot tell you 
how deeply moved I have been this past week by studying the significance of the priesthood of Jesus Christ for me. And one theologian that has helped me a great deal, and I don't really like to read theologians because I see people's eyelids get close together when I do that, but you just need to listen for a second to T.F. Torrance, who is Scottish, and I know this is St. Patrick's Day, but they're really close together. In one place, it's like 12 miles apart. And by the way, why do I have on an orange shirt? Anybody know? Thank you. It wasn't because Tennessee is in the championship today of the SEC basketball tournament. It's because Protestant Orange. But listen to my old buddy, T.F. Torrance. He says this. Here we keep in mind the clue which we took from the nature and pattern of worship in the institution of the covenant between God and man at Israel at Sinai, at Mount Sinai. The immediate pattern of the liturgy, even the construction of the tabernacle in which the high priest had to ascend from the holy place to the holy of holies, an annual atoning renewal of the covenant seems to have been connected with the actual event of mediation between God and Israel affected by Moses in his ascent to Mount Sinai, his intercession on behalf of Israel, and his bringing back to Israel the peace or shalom of God. But as we noted, all that was interpreted in the form of this witness to God's saving and propitiating work so that it was made to point far ahead to a future messianic fulfillment through the servant of the Lord who would mediate a new covenant in which the relations between God and his people would be set on a new and final basis. With his actual fulfillment in the incarnate, incarnate life and self-offering of the Son of God, Jesus Christ embodied in himself a vicarious form, in a vicarious form, the response of human beings to God so that all their worship and all their prayer to God henceforth became grounded and centered in him. In short, Jesus Christ in his own self-gift to the Father, is our worship and prayer in an acutely personalized form, so that it is only through him and with him and in him that we may draw near to God with the hands of our faith filled with no other offering but that which he has made on our behalf and in our place once and for all. That's why Calvin called faith the empty hand. Why? We bring what? Nothing into the presence of God. In that perspective, we must think of prayer as taking place within the relations of covenant par uh, partnership and the reciprocity between God and mankind. But of Christian prayer as grounded in and governed by the fact that through his incarnation, Jesus Christ has stepped into that relationship as the mediator who not only brings God and man and man and God near to each other in propitiation, but who in doing so stands in our place where we cry in prayer to God 
and makes himself our prayer, a prayer not in word or even in act, but only a prayer which he is in his own personal being. Just as Jesus in Jesus Christ, God addresses his word to us in such a way that he himself is wrapped up in his word in the form of personal being. So in Jesus Christ, God has provided us with prayer that is identical with the personal self-offering and self-giving of Jesus to the Father on our behalf. That is to say, when we are unable to pray to the Father as we ought, or in any way worthy of Him, for all our prayers are unclean, Jesus Christ puts His prayer, prayed with us to the Father, into our unclean mouth, that we might pray through Him and with Him and to, in, in, in Him to the Father, and to be received by the Father. Thou art my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We do not come before God then worshiping Him and praying to Him in our own name, in our own significance, but in the name and significance of Jesus Christ alone. For worship and prayer are not ways in which we express ourselves, but ways in which we hold up before the Father His beloved Son and take refuge in His sacrifice, and we make that our plea. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now, a little bit more, and we'll move on. In worship and prayer, Jesus Christ acts in our place and on, on our behalf as both a representative and a substitutionary way so that what he does in our stead is nevertheless affected as our very own, issuing freely and spontaneously out of ourselves. Through his incarnation and atoning union, Jesus Christ has united himself with us in such a reconciling and sanctifying way that he interpenetrates and gathers up all our faltering, unclean worship and prayer into himself and assimilates them in his self-giving to God so that when he presents himself as the worship and prayer of all creation, our worship and prayer are presented there also. When the Father accepts us in Christ as his beloved Son, who then can distinguish our worship from the prayers of Jesus and his worship? For they are one and the same, holy his and holy ours. He closes this way. At the end of the day, when I kneel down and say my evening prayer, I know that no prayer of my own that I can offer to the Heavenly Father is worthy of Him or of power to avail with Him. But all my prayers made in the name of Jesus Christ alone as I rest in His vicarious prayer. It is then with utter peace and joy that I take into my mouth the Lord's Prayer, which I'm invited to pray through Jesus Christ, with Him and in Him to God the Father. For in that prayer, my poor, faltering, sinful prayer is not allowed to fall to the ground, but is gathered up and presented to the Father in holy and eternally prevailing form. At the same time, I recall that the Father has promised to send the Spirit of His Son, mediated through the name and vicarious humanity of Christ, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And I'm assured that as I pray in the name of God's beloved Son, I am caught up with all my own infirmities, with the inarticulate intercession of the eternal Spirit of the Father and of the Son, from whose love nothing in heaven and earth, nothing in this world or in the world to come can ever separate us. It isn't that Jesus just did something in the past to take my sins away. It isn't just that Jesus lived a perfect life and then credited that obedience, that beauty, that love of his to me in the sweet exchange of the gospel. 
But it is also true that even now he saves to the uttermost those who come to God by him because he's at the right hand of the Father. Glorified humanity, the dust of the earth, on the throne of the universe. That's where he is. And that's what he's doing. He's our priest. And I've never been more encouraged than I've been this week. The salvation is all by grace. It is totally, from stem to stern, all the way, by grace. Absolute, total grace. Now that doesn't mean that I, I, I don't need to be exhorted. I do need to be exhorted. But it encourages me that I can please God. Why? Because I'm in union with the only one who ever has. Amen. Do you understand that? What is it that makes what I do pleasing to God? It's never something I produce. It is always something that I do, but it's mixed with or included in the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ on my behalf. And that is why I get rewarded, by the way. I, you can never boast in the Christian life. You can never boast. You can never say, I'm a better Christian than someone else. If you are, why are you? And the reason you are is because God has been gracious to you. Well, grace excludes all what? Boasting. The holier you, you get, the humbler you get. Amen. The more you see that it is by sheer grace that God has any kind of relationship with me. Any. Any. I don't think we really believe that most of the time. I don't really think we do. I don't think that it really gets through that that is the reality. It is supremely in Jesus Christ that we see the double meaning of grace. Grace means that God gives himself to us as God, freely and unconditionally to be worshiped and adored, but grace also means that God comes to us in Jesus Christ as a man to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He offers a life of perfect obedience and worship to the Father that we might be drawn by the Spirit into communion with the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that is why the writer of Hebrews, and if you go back and reread the book of Hebrews, which I did this week, you will see over and over again the essential problem that was going on at this particular church is they were departing from whom? Jesus. They were leaving Jesus and returning back to, or were apostatizing by turning back and falling back on religion and self-righteousness. And so the writer to the Hebrews has gone to great lengths to tell us why would you do that? Why would you and why would that thought ever enter your head to leave Jesus? He's done everything and is still doing everything. Why am I confident that I won't fall away and apostatize? Because I know my Savior's praying for me. Amen. What did he tell Peter? Satan has desired to sift you. You know, Peter was full of pride, full of self-confidence, and he always spoke before he thought, and he was a zealous person, and I love Peter because I see a lot of me in Peter. But Peter said, God forbid, when Christ announced that he was going to the cross and, and he would die and be resurrected on the third day, and... Uh, Jesus, you know, then after all the disciples sort of scattered, Peter says, Lord, I will never leave you. 
I will never forsake you. And he said, Satan has desired you. And he's going to sift you. But I have prayed for you, what? That your faith will not fail. What is faith? Faith is looking outside of myself and relying upon whom? Jesus. There it is. Boom. There it is. Over and over and over again. And the more you read the Bible, the more you see it. And so the opening words of verse 50, now you're wondering, well, he hadn't even got to point one. And look at the time. (laughs) Well, I don't want to let go of the book. You know how it is. But it is only through him that an acceptable sacrifice can be offered. And now he tells us to continually do what? To offer sacrifices, not as a means by which we would atone for our sins or a mean by which, means by which we would gather some sort of uh, credit with God, but rather he tells us to offer the sacrifices of praise, which is the fruit of their lips. Now, why do we praise anything? Why do we praise anything? Let's say that you have a child participating in sports and your child, uh, let's say he's playing baseball. Or she's playing softball. I guess girls play baseball too now. But let's say that they bat five times and they get four hits. Wow, that's batting 800. That's amazing. And so you can't wait to call everybody you know and tell them, look what my daughter did or look what my son did. This is amazing. This is incredible. Nobody uh, does that well. And so you praise someone. Why? Because of who they are, my child, number two, what they've done. And so we extol them, we exalt them, we lift them up, we speak approvingly of them. And to praise someone is to see worth in who they are and worth in what they've done. And so the writer of Hebrews says what we are to be be doing every day, all the time, at every moment, we are consciously aware of Jesus, we are to be praising him. Now that doesn't mean this inane, stupid, robotic, praise the Lord for everything that happened. You hear people do that? I backed over my cat this morning out of the driveway, praise the Lord, you know. (laughs) Driving to work today, I had three flats, praise the Lord. You know, that's vain repetition, that's bonehead, that's boneheadia. But this kind of praise is understanding that it is through him I live. That God's pleasure with me is the same pleasure he has toward his son because I'm united to his son. It isn't that I just have Christ's righteousness. It is that I'm an adopted child of God. And that I have his favor resting upon me as I am united to Christ. And I am united to Christ as my justification. I'm united to Christ as my sanctification. I'm united to Christ as my glorification. And so we can continually offer the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit, what, of our lips. Isn't that amazing? So through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. You see, worship isn't merely, it is this, but it's more than this. Worship isn't something you do one day a week for an hour and a half. 
Worship is all of life. All of life. There is no sacred, secular division to your life. You are united to Christ. And so we live our lives by offering to Him the sacrifice of praise with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Now you might be a bit of a grumbler or a very critical person. Or generally speaking, you're a glass half empty person. Or you're a negative person. You need to get over yourself. And you need to get into Jesus. Because there's every reason in the universe for us to be thrilled. Why? Because the blessings that flow into my life flow because I'm not all that, but because Jesus is all that. And that's how everything that blesses my life comes to me. And so life is a matter of living with the awareness that my Father loves to hear me. He loves for me to pray. He loves for me to draw near to Him. He, he loves for me as I come to Him through Christ. And I can offer up, there's no more atonement sacrifices. That's done. It's finished. There's no more sacrifices of trying to earn God's favor that's done. No more hair shirts. No more crawling across broken glass. No more flagellating yourself with a whip. None of that impresses God or pleases God. Martin Luther lived in a monastery as an Augustinian monk, and he would lay in the floor without any clothes on. I was going to say naked. Or if you're in the south, you call it naked. But anyway, he would lay in the floor and freeze to death, thinking what? By means of that, I will get God's attention and acceptance. Luther finally understood the sweet exchange and understood the reason why I have God's acceptance is who Jesus is, what he's done for me. Therefore, I can live a life pleasing to God by offering him what? Sacrifice of praise and the sacrifice of thanksgiving. But there's another sacrifice here. It's just not Godward. The Christian life isn't merely Godward. It isn't just vertical, but it's horizontal. It isn't just loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but it's also loving your neighbor as yourself. And so there is the sacrifice of good works. Look at what he says. Therefore, uh, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. How do you know you get grace? How do you know you're getting it? How do you know you get the gospel? How do you know it's getting through to you? How do you know it's shaping you powerfully? You begin to look around at your neighbors who are in need, and you begin to get out of yourself and minister to them and give to them and love on them. That's how you know. The more you understand the grace of God, the more the concerns of the marginal people, the outcasts, the broken people, those who are suffering. And, it, you know, there are no deserving poor. Sometimes we want the people to deserve our help. You know, well, I know they're going to do better if I help them. But, but because God has shown such amazing grace to us, it motivates and moves us. Our hearts are are changed and we become in tune. We lose our self-absorption. We lose our, you know, a lot of what I was taught about the Christian life in, as a new believer was nothing more than self-obsessed, navel-gazing, self-centered spirituality. 
It was all about me and Jesus. It was all about getting holy. It was all about, you know, doing all the things I thought to do that would help me get there. I didn't give a flip about people, honestly. You know? I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. But (laughs) Jesus changes all that. How do you know the gospel's getting to you? How do you know you're getting it, it's getting in you? Because you start to look around you and see ways in which you can extend God's mercy to others who are broken, who are needy. And believe me, they are everywhere. And you start first in the household of faith, as we heard in Sunday school today. Your first responsibility is to look around you in church and minister to people who've been broken here. Uh, That's probably um, enough on that. I'm starting to get uncomfortable. Let's move on. (laughs) But it's interesting. One thing I did want to bring up, this phrase doing good is a noun that appears nowhere else in the uh, Greek Bible. But the word refers to the general practice of benevolence or doing well. And it's acts of kindness that are concrete expressions of compassion and concern for others. We can be no more like Jesus Christ than when we do this. You want to be like Jesus? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became what? Poor. That we through his poverty might become what? Rich. And he says to us, Go thou and do likewise. Finally, we can please God. And the motivations of our hearts are changed through the sacrifices of praise and loving action. God is worshipped in a way that pleases Him. And those who worship Him in the acceptable way, that is through Him, um, through Our great high priest uh, can believe that what we do toward ministering to others and how we live as our life is a sacrifice of praise unto him. You know, sad to say that for a large part of my life, I was a leading director, writer, producer, and star of my own B-movie. Now, you know what a B-movie is? A B-movie is a lousy movie. They have cult followings, usually. Uh, I watched a B-movie recently with uh, one of my daughters. It was some zombie movie, the first zombie movie ever made. It was the worst movie I've ever seen. But it was kind of fun. It was campy and kind of fun, but it was the worst movie I've ever seen. That's my life. I think I'm writing the script for my life. I think I'm acting in my own story. But until you become a part of his story, until he takes you out of his story, your story, and makes you his story, then your life will be a sacrifice of praise. You will begin to want to exalt him and not yourself. And you will begin to want to minister people and not just be a closed monad unit, a robot a selfish robot. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you uh, for your word. 
It blesses us today. We know that there's so much more here that we could talk about, but we thank you that what we have talked about is life-changing. I pray that you would help us all understand the sole mediator between God and man is our Lord Jesus Christ and our great high priest representing us, speaking peace over us, giving us his spirit, is at the right hand of the Father. And we pray that we would learn to keep our eyes on Jesus, to keep him fixed, our, our, our focus fixed upon him. Because everyone and everything else will let us down. Everyone and everything else will cause us grief and pain and hardship. Help us, help us to keep our eyes focused on Him. And as we continue to worship, may we give with joy today because we know that in our giving because of Jesus, we please you if our hearts are set on Him. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.